You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. To the rocket scientist, you are a problem. You are the most irritating piece of machinery he or she will ever have to deal with. You and your fluctuating metabolism, your puny memory, your frame that comes in a million different configurations. You are unpredictable. You're inconstant. You take weeks to fix. The engineer must worry about the water and oxygen and food you'll need in space, about how much extra fuel it will take to launch your shrimp cocktail and irradiated beef tacos. A solar cell or a thruster nozzle is stable and undemanding. It does not excrete or panic or fall in love with the mission commander. It has no ego. Its structural elements don't start to break down without gravity, and it works just fine without sleep. But to me, you are the best thing to happen to rocket science. The human being is the machine that makes the whole endeavor so endlessly intriguing. To take an organism whose every feature is evolved to keep it alive and thriving in a world with oxygen, gravity, and water, and to suspend that organism in the wasteland of space for a month or a year, is a preposterous but captivating undertaking. Everything one takes for granted on Earth must be rethought, relearned, rehearsed. Full-grown men and women toilet trained. A chimpanzee dressed in a flight suit and launched into orbit. An entire odd universe of mock outer space has grown up here on Earth. Capsules that never blast off. Hospital wards, where healthy people spend months on their backs masquerading zero gravity. Crash labs where cadavers drop to Earth in simulated splashdowns. A couple years back, a friend at NASA had been working on something over in Building 9 at the Johnson Space Center. This is the building with the mock-ups, some 50 in all. Modules, airlocks, hatches, capsules. For days, Rene had been hearing an intermittent squeaking racket. Finally, he went to investigate. Some poor guy in a spacesuit running on a treadmill suspended from a big complicated gizmo to simulate Martian gravity. Lots of clipboards and timers and radio headsets and concerned looks all around. It occurred to me, reading his email, that it's possible in a way to visit space without leaving Earth, or anyway, a sort of slapstick, surreal, make-believe edition, which is more or less where I've been these past two years. Mary Roach is the author of Stiff and Spook and Bonk. Her new book is Packing for Mars. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, thanks for talking to me again. It's always fun. You know, Mary, one of the things I like about your books is you have an interesting notion of humans as being you you love humans but you think we're absurd (laughs) yeah well especially for this one i started to think of the human being as this really bizarre planet this real just this this the human body is an endlessly intriguing disgusting (laughs) fascinating unusual and unpredictable thing and it's uh, i never get tired of it you know one of the things that I find really interesting is how cultural our notions of what space travel should be are. They're really based, we think of space travel and scientific endeavors as being based on some kind of reasonable um, advance or, or exploration, experimentation, A after, comes after B, C comes after B, and we go on. But it's not that way at all. No, there's really, it's a never-ending parade of of surprises and unexpected things. This one story I I like to tell by way of illustration is when uh, 
Coke and Pepsi tried to put carbonated beverages in space. They thought, okay, we now zero gravity. You have to, you have to come up with a zero gravity carbonation device because gas bubbles don't float to the surface in zero gravity. So they spent half a million dollars. They came up, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. They flew these, this carbonated cola drink in space. But what nobody, what everybody failed to consider is that the human stomach doesn't work right when it comes to burping because the gas, when you, you swallow air or you drink, you know, carbonated beverage, the gas doesn't rise to the top where the opening is. So therefore, when you try to expel the gas, you also expel a liquid spray and it's very unpleasant and disgusting. And so they flew this stuff and no one would drink it. No beer in space? No beer in space, sadly, yes. Oh my God. It's just a disaster before you even get off the earth. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know... Um, one of the things you say, and I think this is very interesting, is that space exploration is in some ways an exploration of what it means to be human. Yeah, it is. I, I, because you've got, uh, you, you've got this environment in which nothing that we as human beings need and want is there. You don't have, you know, the basic survival, you don't have, you've got no air, you, you don't have gravity, so the whole human body is working in a weird way. You don't have anything natural, you don't have fresh food, you don't have privacy, you don't have, really it's just this stripped down survival experiment. So, it, it, and, and you really need to look at, well, well, how much can you take away and still expect people to go there? And, you know, should we still sense people, given that there's so little of what we need up there, and yet we still are driven to go there? That's what's fascinating to me, is that it is incredibly inconvenient and unpleasant in many ways, yet there are uh, plenty of people who just give anything for a ride into space. Including millions of dollars. Um, one of the things that, that I thought was so interesting about this book was how I think what we don't know, what we didn't know, came into play at the beginning. You cite the example of the people who thought that when trains were first invented, that, that seeing the landscape go, go by so fast might cause humans to maybe go mad. <laughs> yeah, that, that was an example that was given to me by a... Um, his name is Krikulev. He uh, runs the training program at Star City in Moscow. Uh, I, I had asked him about, there's a whole theory that when we go to Mars, if we do, uh, that when we lose sight of the Earth, we, we will freak out, that we'll lose all of our, you know, all the moral systems of Earth will fall away and people will be, you know, reduced to savages in space. And, you know, this whole, uh, and, and I, I told him this this theory that, that there are papers on, and he said, first of all, he said, well, uh, these are written by psychologists. Psychologists need to write papers. And he and, he, and he's the one who said, bear in mind when we first, yeah, and, and all, these trains, the early trains going 30 miles per hour, but there were psychologists saying that the, that the trees, you know, flicking past on the window, g giving the sensation of speed would be more than what the, the, the uh, human um, entity could, could, could stand, could tolerate. It would, it would freak them out. So there were all these considerations. And, and there, were, there was this fear uh, in the early days of not even space, but when they were doing flights higher and higher, you know, the, the test pilots of the Chuck Yeager era, there was this um, concern about the breakaway phenomenon, that the pilot would just be overcome by this desire to keep on going and going, that, you know, that they'd lose their minds completely. There were all these fears. Nobody knew what would happen. You'd turn into Icarus. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was, and and there were reports. There was a paper, and there were uh, uh, enough of, of enough of enough cases where pilots would like say, "I, 
I felt like a king, a god. I wanted to. Fly. I did want to fly on and on. And so they were afraid that you know Yuri Gagarin, the first, the first man in space. They, he didn't have control of the capsule because they were afraid he would uh, something like that would overcome him, and he would do something rash, and there would go the whole you know all the billions of hours and 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 uh, you know not billions of dollars, but the money spent. And so they they said like just just sit in there and just you know let us know how it is for you, and we'll take care of the uh, controls down here. You know, there, yeah, there's always this feeling that whatever barrier we haven't crossed is this ultimate barrier. I remember there was a Star Trek episode where when they went out beyond the end, edge of the galaxy, all the people who were in the ship kind of changed and became godlike or something happened. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what, why would the galaxy, how can you even tell where the edge is? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, there, were, there was a... There was a lot of concern about, and, and and there was this wonderful quote, Alexei Leonov, the first the first man to spacewalk, to go outside of a capsule and to float freely in space while in orbit. He he mentioned after he came back, he said, not only was there no barrier, no sensation of crossing a barrier that man had not crossed. I even forgot that there was a barrier. You know, it, for him, it was just an, an extraordinary experience that he didn't want to end which explains why we go through so much trouble to put human beings in cans and send them out into space. Yeah. At least in part. Uh, one of the things that y you talk about how we prepare for space, and one of the things we encounter in space immediately is isolation. And, mm -hmm. and you visited a, a Japanese uh, isolation chamber that's running now for the Japanese uh, astronauts. Well, there, yeah, I, I visited two isolation chambers. One was uh, used to choose, uh, it was it was a, a week-long isolation where applicants to become Japanese astronauts were under observation by psychologists. So they were looking at how, not so much how they dealt with solitude, because now we're looking at, you know, five, six people being up on the ISS, International Space Station. So they were looking at how they got along, the group interactions. Mm -hmm. But then uh, there's another um, isolation in Moscow going on right now called Mars 500, which is 500 days, and that's a sh short version of a Mars mission. Uh, and they are locked in a series of modules, and they're being observed to see what sorts of interpersonal, cross-cultural, mixed gender, all the things that can really make... Um, you know, two, two years in a can, a really trying experience. They're watching all of that. Now, you applied for that, didn't you? I did, like an idiot. I did. I applied. <laughs> Tell us about well, how, you, how did you go? How do you apply for such a thing? Well, I'd heard about it. I was at a conference in Berlin when I first started the book, and I heard about Mars 500. Uh, there was going to be a three-month kind of runner-up where they work out the kinks and the technologies. And, and I thought, okay, three months for a book, I could do that. And so I applied, and I made it through the first round of cuts because very few women applied for this. And uh, I got to the first round where it's basically just medical, get a physical and that sort of thing. And then they said, well, we'll call you for an interview. I said, fine. This is the European Space Agency who is doing the recruiting. And uh, I got a call at 3.30 in the morning. And I didn't take care to hide my irritation. I said, I'm on the West Coast. Maybe you didn't realize that. And I was like, hold on, I'll get my bathrobe. You know, and then they um, they asked me a few perfunctory questions. And I realized later, very likely that was part of the test. Because as an astronaut, you, you or or as a uh, person in, a, in a, a mock space mission, you definitely have to be willing to be woken up at all hours of night and deal with whatever there is to deal with. So they, they ruled me out pretty quick.
Well, one of the things I think that's very interesting is what you talk about, these kind of sneaky tests that they pull mm -hmm. where they where it doesn't even look like you're being tested. And I think that's really a fascinating approach and, and um, smart. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. Uh, I talked to a guy... Um, Ralph Harvey, who works down in Antarctica, which is often used as an analog for space because it is so isolated and you are really stuck with small groups of people in difficult circumstances. And he sometimes, he's been involved in the astronaut selection process here and there. And he said one of his uh, people he'd worked with has, had applied. And at one point he got this call from NASA saying, um, yes, uh, this person who you've done a reference for, we'll be giving him a T-38 jet to fly for the first time. And we thought um, we'd like you to go along with him on the flight uh, and, and give us your observations. And he said, yeah, I knew that what they were doing is testing me to see how much confidence I had in him as a pilot. It was never going to come to a flight. So I said, absolutely, I'll get on board that T-38. And, uh, and they'll also do things like say, well, we've lost uh, some of your medical tests, and we need you to come back to Houston and redo them, and we'd need you to do that tomorrow. And uh, Ralph was saying that, that what they're really saying is, how badly do you want to be one of us? Will you drop everything? But they don't realize it's a test. They just, you know, believe that they'd lost the uh, medical tests. And so, but the, in a way, you really, if you just rely on somebody's word or on the word of their professor or whatever, of course, everybody sounds like the next Leonardo. One of the things that you, you talk about, and I think this is very interesting, is that, um, as you said, Yuri Gargarin went up there, he was spam in a can, and he did about as much to the can as spam does. Yes. <laughs> but on Mars, that you're going to need some kind of innovators and thinkers, because you've got a 20-minute lag time yes. in just the radio transmissions. Yeah, with Mars, it, well, it's interesting, We the, the whole... The kind of person who becomes an astronaut, who's, who's chosen to be an astronaut, has changed from the Mercury era, where it was, you know, self-starter, brave, aggressive, macho, fighter pilot personality. Because these guys are one guy in a capsule for a short mission. So you wanted this fearless, you know, you really were taking tremendous risks and doing something incredibly brave. And then now we're in the, you know, the, the, the space shuttle and the space station era, where you have longer missions, five, six people you need to play well with others. So moving towards Mars again, you kind of want a combination because it's going to be a long duration, lots of people, small space. So now you're going to need kind of a, a mixture of the, the right stuff and the, you know, the space shuttle kind of uh, good-natured person who can get along with everyone. But, you know, with 20-minute lag, if you have an emergency, you can't get on the you know, radio with mission control and just say, hey, what do we do? Because you're not going to hear your reply for 20 minutes. You know, one of the things that, that I thought was great was the legend of Donald Farrell. What a, what an incredible uh, find that is. How did you find out about him? Explain who he is and how did you find out about him? Sure. Donald Farrell, this is, there was a wonderful, uh, this era in the 60s, in, um, 65, 66, and before, a few years before that, um, where the Air Force was uh, using space cabin simulators, putting volunteers, airmen, students, putting them in these space cap capsule simulators for weeks or months to look at things like, well, what happens if you don't bathe for a month? And what happens if you're just by yourself in a capsule psychologically? What happens for two weeks? And, and you know, building up to the Apollo missions where they were trying to figure out here on Earth, what are we going to have to cope with up there? And let's see if we can um, resolve some of these issues. And Farrell was... 
he did a, basically went to the moon while sitting in a box in, I think it was in Ohio. And uh, he was, uh, he was an airman and there was, I so wanted to find his, his diaries. I couldn't, I contacted the Air Force Base and they're like, no, we don't, we don't have those. There was a Life magazine had, had written about him and he, uh, apparently the, his, his diary entries were more and more laced with expletives and he became more and crankier and crankier and, um, but but really, the, the only things I could find that he was really complaining about were the, uh, he forgot his comb, so he built one using, I think it was toothpicks and tape, and uh, he missed cigarettes, and uh, I, I, and I'm speculating here, but I think also the, the, the music that they piped in must have been annoying. I think I remember one of the articles saying that the song Love is a Many Splendored Thing was one of the... <laughs> Can you imagine being locked in a room, having to listen to love as a many splendored thing? Yeah, you know, there was a, when you talk about these simulations in the 60s, I'm remembering now there was an old Outer Limits episode where they put people on a train to simulate a Mars mission. And of course, there's an alien aboard. And yeah. There's, outer Limits things happen. Yeah. But I guess that whole simulation culture yeah. was, was very alive and well, and, and well known enough to reach out into popular culture. Yeah, I I had never heard of these space cabin simulators. I I I came across these papers. I I, I looking around at the engineering library at Berkeley. I just sort of stumbled onto a, a bunch of them, and they were particularly the ones that were experiments in restricted hygiene. And this was during this was pre Gemini when they were getting ready to send people up for two weeks. Nobody had been in space for two weeks, so now we were facing issues. Uh, like, what, 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 at what point does it become a health risk to not have someone bathing, particularly wearing a, a, a pressure suit? Because they, the plan was to have them in the suits the entire time, which turned out to be unbearable. Mm. And uh, they, didn't, they didn't, in the end, do that. Uh, but I would just remember reading about these poor guys. Just, and they were testing foods, too. And this was an era where the foods were horrible. They were, they were trying to make low-residue food, meaning... <laughs> You don't excrete anything. Like uh, make it as uh, um, just as uh, one way as it could be. Like you, and so these foods were highly processed, coated so they wouldn't have crumbs. They were looking at like milkshake diets, cubed foods, and some of the airmen. They, they were, um, I talked to the guy who ran the simulator. He said there were you know sometimes when they would just be emptying it under the floorboards, <laughs> 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 doing whatever they could not to eat it. You know. Uh... The, among the qualifications for astronauts, one of the things that you mentioned I think is very interesting is that you need a family that's willing to let you go. I mean, there's a lot of things about being an astronaut that are not apparent. It's not just like getting on a plane and having to go into space. Yeah, and that was that was a, a tremendous uh, so the fallout of Apollo. You know, with the, these astronauts who had basically been absentee dads because the space program really took control of their lives and not just in the training and the and the mission but the aftermath the publicity and like sending them on tour goodwill tours uh, having to be constantly available to the press and the stress on the wives of being on view during what is most obviously the, one of the most stressful times of their lives to be constantly smiling and optimistic uh, there were a lot of divorces that that, that uh, happened after the uh, the moon missions you know, uh, it's also interesting to think just about the, the way the, the media has, has dealt with space in terms of, you know, the, the, sea, the, the Canadian reality space show. Talk about yeah. that. I haven't heard, never heard about that. It sounds like fun. Well, the Canadian, yeah, the, um, I, had a cha- I have a chapter in the book about uh, 
the selection process. And mm-hmm. I spent some time in Japan where they had them in an isolation chamber and they were doing some sort of you know, interesting tests. Very different, though, from uh, the Canadian Space Agency had this. It, it wasn't an actual reality show on TV, but on the website there was installments and they'd be, okay, now they're they're going to be dropped into a swimming pool with, you know, five-foot waves, and they're going to have to deal with getting out of a helicopter that is is, is sinking, and, and this whole kind of um, survival aspect really highlighting the, the unlikely chance that something horrible goes wrong. But it, may, it made for very good uh, um, publicity, and it was uh, certainly, uh, I, I imagine... Uh, appealing at least to the media. I, I don't know how much of the testing was done for the benefit of the media or if they really, that is their approach to choosing astronaut candidates. I mean, um, astronauts. You know, uh, I, I also love the, the forensic origami of the, of the Japanese test. Yes, totally different than the whole Canadian, you know, surviving a crash uh, mentality. In Japan, they had, uh, yeah, they, they had 10 finalists for this uh, for the position, and they'd been given these sheets of colored paper, and I, which I recognized uh, as or, origami paper. And they were doing this test called 1,000 Cranes. And each candidate, each astronaut applicant, had to fold 100 cranes, and they would string them. And then the strings would be given to a psychologist who would evaluate uh, the first cranes versus the last. Was Did the person, were their folds precise all the way along the 100 cranes? Because... And it seems sort of absurd, but really made a lot of sense because space, there's a lot of tedious, repetitive tasks in space, and you're working against the clock because if you've got a limited supply of oxygen and you're out on a spacewalk and you're tightening bolts or doing whatever you have to do, you can't be the kind of person who gets sloppy. So it kind of made sense. It was just not at all what uh, you would expect to see John Glenn or Alan Shepard doing back then, but uh, in its way, kind of an appropriate test. Now... One of the things that I found uh, fun about this book was you got to go on the Vomit Comet. Yeah, I did. (laughs) I get get spam emails from them all the time wanting me to do this, but I don't know if I could handle this. And and, uh, this is something that I've always thought about space is that while it sounds really good, if you're like at least prone to being seasick, it could be like a real bad, could be very, very bad. It could bad. be your, the lowest point of your entire life. But I, I think, I recommend that you do it for mm. sure. Because, I mean, I, I get sick watching handheld movies. Mm. I, I get, I do get motion sickness. And the, the, the thing is, though, that they give you wonderful drugs. They give you uh-huh. scopol- scopolamine, which is the patch that you get for motion sickness, plus dexedrine to keep you to make you not drowsy. Mm. So there were a couple people up there that got quite ill, but almost everybody was okay. You you should do it. it it's so much fun. You, I mean, you are Superman. You're just at flying across the room, and, and the, you don't weigh anything. It's this unbelievable kind of physical euphoria. I, I wanted to, I desperately want to do it again. Uh, talk about the different how important that is. I mean, this is something that almost, you know, kept could have kept us off the moon. Well, they, the, yeah, the, uh, the 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 plane. This it's the C nine. Now it used to be the KC one thirty five, and they they fly these flights all the time. Not so much to be training astronauts, although that happens too. But they are anything that's going to be any technology, any gadget, anything from a toilet to a food packaging system gets tested in zero. Has to be tested in zero gravity because if you just Try to guess whether it's going to work in zero gravity, you're going to be in trouble. It'll be like the Coke and Pepsi fiasco. You want to be able to give everything a test run. And even even in tw- you have 20 seconds of zero gravity at a time, and you go through like 30 up and down cycles. So you've got 
you know, five, five, ten minutes of, of zero gravity. And that, but that's enough to get a sense that something's going to work. So, because if it doesn't, it's a really expensive fiasco. Oh, well, that's one of the things that you mentioned that makes space travel so costly is there's so much that we just absolutely have don't know we 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 don't know until we get up there and then we realize that we don't know right so we don't know that we don't know there's a there's a double layer of ignorance in the in the whole space program right that's right people people uh often are puzzled by how expensive things are for space but you can't almost across the board can't send uh an Earth version, even a ballpoint pen. I mean, you can't. Uh, things just don't work <laughs> up there like they work down here, and everything has to be rethought and tested and developed. And surely, you, know, you could probably do it for less than than the government typically does it. But uh, it, there, there is a very good reason why space is so expensive. Well, uh, one of the things that interested me was the the space chimps, especially the Alberts. You know, I've seen a V2 rocket. One of my friends did something uh, for the survival research labs, and they had a V2 rocket on wheels. God, that thing was loud, going around the inside of some warehouse off the San Francisco docks. Wow. (laughs) And and when you say that uh, they put a chimp on one of these things, that's that's incredible. And this is like uh, yeah. the beginning of our space program was really like using stolen technology, literally yeah, yeah. stolen. Well, yeah, the V2, were those were, we, we got them along with the rocket guys from uh, Germany. And we, and, and it wasn't even, it was, a, they were rhesus monkeys. The Alberts were little tiny. And, and they were not only that, they were small rhesus monkeys. So you're imagining this great, big, amazing, powerful rock and a little tiny, tiny monkey on the tip of it. And that was this... <laughs> And, and and they were being sent up specifically to find out, can a mammal survive in space? I mean, nobody knew. It was just, just like this boundary that we hadn't crossed and no one knew, you know, do will the blood even circulate or will it kind of churn in place? Will the eyeball change shape and the person won't be able to see? Will the heart stop functioning? Will the organs not function? So there were all these flights where everybody, where people had wired up these little tiny and they all were named Albert over and over. <laughs> Albert one, Albert two, Albert three, uh, all the way think Albert six. I think it was. They finally cha- changed the name to Patricia and Michael because they were having bad luck with the Alberts. But uh, yeah, this era of endless hand wringing. What will happen? I don't know. I'm not going up there. You go first. I'll send a monkey. <laughs> you know, it's also amazing. In retrospect, thinking back over the effect and, and our impressions of the space program. Getting Americans on the moon first proved to be really quite brilliant because I think that's what we all see as the culmination and is really the best, biggest part of the program when, in reality, Russia got up, had a lot more firsts than we did. Oh, yeah. Russia had uh, the the first, well, the first man in space, the first man in orbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terror of Sputnik. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, the first, um, the first animal, uh, the first uh, animals, organisms to return safely from orbit, Belka and Strelka, who are stuffed in the Museum of Cosmonautics in Moscow, (laughs) (laughs) just standing there looking up into space, or at the ceiling, as it were. And uh, the first woman in space, the the first spacewalk. uh, That's partly why when Ham successfully went up, you know, it, it was like the media was so hungry for a success, an American success, that, uh, you know, the, the ham was on the cover, the little chimpanzee who what preceded Alan Shepard into space. And Alan Shepard was then beat by Yuri Gagarin. So ham was like all we had to, we got that first chip up there. We got that. <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting, too, that they, 
these astronauts, they were incredibly brave, but they weren't really doing anything except saying, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Real, yeah, yeah. They, I, I, I talked to the, the chimps' uh, trainers, uh, Ham and Enos, both of their trainers, and they, did, they were describing, he said, you know, they were really, uh, they weren't operating a spacecraft. They were projectiles. They were essentially great big projectiles with somebody, something in it, and it happened to be a person. I mean, it was a chimp, human. It, it didn't matter because they could be controlled from Earth. So that really was, uh, and, and I think it was it was uh, a great blow to their egos to have Alan Shepard and John Glenn to have been preceded by chimps because the un, unspoken implication is your job could be done by a chimp. And hey, guess what it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were sec- literally second banana. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things, I thought it was interesting too that uh, testing the spacesuits that mm-hmm. that in order to test a spacesuit and it was safe for a man you had to test it on a chimp but to test it for a chimp you had to make sure it was safe yeah there was there was a <laughs> spacesuit called the spca suit and uh it was a suit that yeah well you just you just basically said it it was you know we were using chimps to to make sure things were safe for man but then the spca got involved and we had to test the chimp's suit on a man to make sure it was safe for the chimp. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Now, um, in preparation to go to the moon, we looked for places that were similar on Earth. You mentioned Antarctica, and also in your book you talk about Devon Island, where yeah. you went. Yeah. And you got to be kind of on a moon bus. That was one of my favorite toys from our models from 2001 was the moon bus. Yeah, yeah. It was a – well, they were – we didn't have the rovers yet. The rotor, rover prototype wasn't um, wasn't up there, so they had a simulated rover. Uh, it was a Humvee. One of them was a Humvee, and the other one was a Kawasaki Mule. That was kind of the downscale one, where it didn't have a doesn't even have a roof on it. But they were really working out because um, this is Devon Island is way up. It's it's an uninhabited island, and it's a couple hundred miles from the magnetic North Pole. It's it's quite remote, and it, it has all these craters that are similar to. Parts of it look a lot like the moon, the Taurus-Littrow Valley in, in particular, and also other parts are very um, Martian-like. And so it's great for testing, um, like for example, how much oxygen does it take to climb the edge of a crater, or 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 how you know will this spacesuit, this surface spacesuit, work for this walking on this kind of terrain? And we were doing looking at a two rover, two week traverse, which has never been done. The the, the moon. Uh, expeditions were a few hours so it was uh you know looking at how long do we do the rovers stay apart and where do they rendezvous and um what happens if they get off schedule how do we you know how do you figure out how to do an expedition in a place where it has to be so carefully planned because you have to have the right uh, amount of fuel the right amount of oxygen because if you head out for two weeks and then run out of fuel then you're in a bit of trouble you know, one of the things that you say, we, we were talking about this earlier, was that uh, the original prototype for the astronaut was like, you know, kind of a Top Gun kind of guy. But it strikes me in speaking to you, you're the perfect choice for somebody to send to Mars. Who, me? You. Oh, God, I'm a terrible choice. Why? Oh, no, no, because, Why? no. You've already I, gone through all the training. You, you, know, you know how gross it is. Yeah, I'm, well, I, I'd be fine with the, all the restricted hygiene stuff. I'm kind of a slob anyway. And I, I like to backpack where you're talking about, you know, not bringing a lot of underwear and, and digging a hole to take a 
to go to the bathroom. And uh, you, you uh, that stuff wouldn't bother me, but it's the, the psychological. I know if you put me in a room with six people for two years and no way out, uh, I, I, I think I would, uh, I don't have enough patience. I think you need to be an extraordinarily patient person. Also somebody who has, keeps a pretty effective rein on their emotion. You know, it isn't going to be immediately expressing irritation. You have to, you just can't be a grump. You can't be, uh, a person who voices all the little things that are bugging them. And that is the, I, that is me. I am the kind of person that if something's bugging me, you know it. And that's the last person you want on a three-year <laughs> mission to Mars. <laughs> well, now you talk to some space psychologists and psychiatrists. Yeah. And, and I think this is a fascinating, it's fascinating that such a field even exists yeah. when our chances of getting out into space in any big way at this point seem fairly remote, unfortunately. Yeah, right, right. Right. The, yes, it, it speaks to the optimism of, I know, of the scientific I know. establishment. Yeah, they've been they've been thinking about this for a long time, and they they do a lot of these isolations. Uh, uh, they, I mean, the the one going on in Moscow is one example, but they've done them for years, putting people together and looking at um, is mixed gender better than all one sex? Uh, Cross cultural issues. That's another you know miscommunications. Oh, you talked about that. That mm-hmm. was really fascinating uh, uh, about yeah. the the. Uh, uh, I and the problems on the ISS. Well, there was a, yeah, there was a simulation called Sphinx. Mm-hmm. It uh, stands for it's S F I N C S S, and I won't bore you with what it stands for. But it was a uh, a study of the of cross cultural. Well, it was it was looking at cross cultural factors in in crews and how they get along and how much of a problem it is. And it really was a problem they had um, in this particular study. There was a fist fight. Uh, on New Year's Eve, somebody had smuggled in some alcohol. There was a fist fight. The Russian commander pushed the Canadian woman out of the camera range and tried to kiss her against her will. She got very upset. The Japanese guy quit because the Russians were watching porn. And it was, uh, but I mean, of course, the psychologists were all going, we're getting great stuff because that's why they had done it, to see what happens at what kind of time frame and what might we do to prevent that kind of thing from happening. You know, uh, if in space nobody can hear you scream, everybody can smell your B.O. And, and that's one of the, <laughs> yes. great, the great aspects of this book. Uh, talk about, you know, uh, when they first did this, you were talking about the two weeks uh, in, in uh, Gemini, Gemini that Borman, I, was Borman, right? Mm-hmm. Borman and Lovell, uh, yes. Borman and Lovell. Um, they originally wanted them to sit in two weeks in a, in a sim, and Borman yeah. just nixed that right out of the box. Yeah, yeah, they were, because Gemini 7 really was a, a simulated version of a, of a moonshot. It was a two, it was the first time anybody had been in space for two weeks. It was looking at, well, among other things, can you stand to go without a shower while wearing a hot, heavy suit for two weeks? What happens to your skin? Is it dangerous? Is it too, just too disgusting? So they, yes, originally they had wanted them to do it on Earth. And, and Borman said, yeah, I think his words were, we got that kicked out right away. Uh, but they did a simu- the, uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, they did a space cabin simulator test, uh, which was a mock Gemini 7 where they had uh, students from Dayton University, I think it was, come in and they had them wearing the suit. They jacked the temperature up to 92. Their underwear literally decomposed. Because what happens is your your clothing, particularly cotton, is really good at absorbing oils and the crud that builds up on your skin. So y- y- until that 
layer of clothing completely disintegrates, your skin doesn't get that bad. But then once the clothing starts to get saturated, then it starts to build up on your skin. So they, they, they learned all this fascinating stuff about what happens when you don't bathe. Well, also, um, bathing in space proved to be a problem. No showering. I mean, how, again... Yeah. That's the end of space travel so far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the showers don't work because the water comes out and it, it goes a little way because there's enough pressure to get it out away from the shower head. And then it just starts to form a big blob. And the other thing about those the blobs that form is that they cling to the concave areas. So they cling to your nostrils and your mouth. And you there really was a, a, fear, a sense that you, the sensation of, of being able to drown in the shower. The, 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 the Russians, there was a, when they were still doing showers, they don't bother anymore because they just don't work. But there was a shower on Salyut, and uh, one of the cosmonauts in the Diary of a Cosmonaut, he describes uh, the very strange sight of a man flying across the room naked with a, with a snorkel mask on because <laughs> they would wear a snorkel mask in the shower. You know, you, you stumbled onto something, too, that I think was really interesting, which is the oral history of the, of the, of the NASA astronauts who... I never knew such a thing existed. I didn't either, and it's all there on the NASA website you can find. It takes a bit of searching to find, and NASA's website is huge. But there are oral histories of hundreds, not just astronauts, but um, like the food science people, the uh, the guys at the launch pad, the, the, the flight surgeons, the guys in charge of quarantine on Apollo, all these folks, not just Apollo, but um, all the way through all the different space programs, and uh, very long, and... and often very candid interviews. They're, they're really fascinating to read. You know, um, uh, among the many things we experience in space, it, it, we still really don't have, it doesn't seem to me from this reading your book that we still don't have a, uh, an answer to the problem of uh, bone loss. That's true, yes. Bone loss, um, when you're in zero gravity, you're not using your skeleton at all. You're not putting any weight on it. So your, your body tends to just to streamline whenever it can. And if you're not using something, it starts to dismantle it. So for a Mars mission, the person that I talked to told me you would be looking at anywhere from a third to a half uh, loss of uh, bone density, bone mass. And that is equivalent to going into a wheelchair. So of course you get it back when you come down, but you don't necessarily gain it all back in the same places. And it's still, it's a problem uh, that is taken very seriously at NASA, they even simulate bed rest. I mean, simulate zero gravity, having people lie in bed for months at a time. They pay people to lie in bed. Yeah, you talk to some of those yeah. volunteers who, yeah. who, and they're not allowed to move for anything, are you, they? Yeah, you can move, but you can't sit up. So mm. you can you can't put any weight on your skeleton. They can roll over, and they can, when they eat, they sort of lie propped up on one elbow, and they have to use a bedpan for, uh, uh, the whole time. And uh, on the plus side, though, you get free internet. Uh, you can surf the web. <laughs> You've got a free phone card, and uh, if you if you're if, say you were finishing a novel or something that you really wanted time to work on, it could it could kind of um, work to your advantage. But it tends to be something people do when they want to get out of debt. Now uh, we we have all at least uh, probably oh, um, considered, and we've seen it um, alluded to in movies. Uh, Sex in space. Mm -hmm. You call it the Three Dolphin Club. Explain why it's the yeah. Three Dolphin Club. <laughs> the Three Dolphin Club. That comes from a hoax. There was a 
um, a false document that went around on the internet about a shuttle mission, I forget the number, but that supposedly was NASA investigating, um, oh, no, actually there were two of them. One of them was that NASA was using the neutral buoyancy tank, which is this big swimming pool where they rehearse spacewalks and things like that. There was a rumor that they had had people look into the best sexual positions for zero gravity. And the, the report, which was of course fake, this was a hoax, the report said that they determined that as with dolphins, it was useful to have a third party to push in the right place at the right time. <laughs> well, okay, I called a dolphin expert and uh, I got this very ter terse email in reply that said, only two dolphins are required for mating. However, uh, I talked to other marine biologists who said uh, earless seals, otters, do the male does have a little difficulty keeping the female close because you tend to drift apart. So gravity is your friend when it comes to sexual intercourse. <laughs> and, and the and tell us about the Uranus project. Oh right, the well the Uranus experiments. This was yeah. I saw a little mention in this um, European magazine Colors by uh, ben Benetton puts it out. Uh, don't, they obviously don't have a good fact checking staff because they mentioned this porn film called the Uranus Experiments that had a zero-gravity sex shot. And I thought, well, I need to talk to the porn star who did that because then I can find out what it's like to have sex in zero-gravity, if not space, but zero-gravity, close enough. And uh, I talked to the producer of the film. The, uh, the star herself has gone back to Czechoslovakia, is, is, is sort of uh, off the grid, but the producer uh, said, yes, in fact, well, yeah, we did. We did. It was a, a private jet pilot that I have a timeshare in, and he did. And I said, you're kidding me. You had that pilot do a parabolic flight, weightless flight? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, you got to send me the download. And so he sends me the download. It is so faked. <laughs> There's, you could see the scene, you know, the scene where they're supposedly in zero gravity. Um, her ponytail is hanging down her back, which wouldn't happen in zero gravity. She's not, she doesn't have that wonderful buoyant lift that you would see with um, the female anatomy in zero gravity. And, uh, they're really just when they're they're kind of standing behind a console. You can tell they're just on their tiptoes, sort of going up and down and waving their arms in the air. Uh, it's completely not true. But I was very excited that I was going to find somebody who could tell me what firsthand what it had been like. Well, I thought what was interesting too was just the way that um, one hoax would be cited by another. So, yes. So that that uh, the, yeah. the the layers of lies just build up and, yeah. and accrete into something that's looks like truth. Yeah, there was a second hoax about a, a shuttle mission, which as it turned out, if you look up that mission number, it was an all-male <laughs> flight that happened years ago. Um, the, yeah, uh, that that particular hoax about the shuttle mission cited as a reference the um, three dolphin one. So yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you also, disappointingly somewhat to me, uh, solved the whole Roswell mystery. Oh, well, yeah, the Roswell, that was fascinating. The guy, I, I, I didn't know I was talking to him, but Dan Fulgham, who was involved in the early, uh, the, the Mercury astronaut selection process, and he was a, um, he tested emergency bailout systems for some of those, uh, like the space plane, the dinosaur X-20. He uh, turned out to have been, he was, in, he was doing, they were doing some experiments uh, in the, I think it was the late 50s, and uh, where they were uh, having people jump, go up in balloons, and then jump from up high to test uh, para stabilizing parachute systems that would keep you from spinning too much. Well, he came down from a balloon at one point, 
uh, the balloon crashed and it landed, you know, he fell out of the gondola. It fell, it landed on his head, his head. It's unbelievable. You see the pictures, his head swelled up. He really looked like an alien. They took him to the hospital there and civilians saw him coming and going. And these rumors started circulating about an alien that had been taken to uh, the hospital there in, in Roswell. It was an Air Force base. And he, I, I, having seen the photographs, I t absolutely understand why people thought he was an alien. There were lots of tests and lots of strange things. People also saw they would drop um, dummies. They were anthropomorphic dummies. They were testing, um, again, testing these stabilizing drogue parachute systems to see how you could prevent um, pilots from spinning so fast that they'd be killed. So these... Um, and they look very realistic. They'd come down and people would see them, but they, and they just get a glimpse of them. They'd see that their, you know, they only, their fingers were fused because they were dummies, that their faces were not completely formed. They really, and they were very short, uh, some of them. So people, there were these wonderful descriptions of these, you know, and the Air, the Air Force would come and run up and get them and drive away very furtively, <laughs> which was their mistake because people were like, oh, they're trying to cover it up. A lot of this went on around Roswell in, in, during that time. Well, thank you for solving that for us, I think. I... Well, yeah, I know. I was actually a little disappointed myself. I've always wanted to go camp out in Area 51 and yeah. see who stops by. Now, um, there is one last uh, uh, problem of space we have to talk about, which is what to do with the food after we've eaten it. Yes, well, uh, that, could be, uh, that could be very helpful on a Mars mission, okay? <laughs> uh, because when you go to Mars, you're, talk you're talking about a lot of exposure to cosmic radiation and um, solar activity that you don't have the, the Earth's uh, atmosphere and um, magnetic field protect us, and we don't have that protection. So hydrocarbons, food, and uh, excreted food material are very good as shielding. So the... Uh, I'll give you a quote. Well, maybe I'll change it a little bit for the radio audience. But the the Pascal Lee, the head of the Mars Institute, said, "Yeah, well, basically, you'd fly there in a can of food, and you'd fly home in a can of material, post food, <laughs> post food." Yeah. Now they had some pretty amazing experiments trying to figure out how to deal with going to the bathroom in space. It's one of those things that. Again, you watch Star Trek and the doors squeak and everybody's happy. That's not the way it happened in space, was it? They had bags. No, they they, had... For, for Gemini, well, Mercury was short enough that you didn't have to worry about it. But Gemini and Apollo in particular, when you start getting up to two weeks, the answer is no longer a constipated astronaut. <laughs> Which it was up, to, up, up until up until the, the missions began to go longer than three four days. Uh, that was you would they would they made the food specifically uh, to be low residue, mm. meaning n nothing to excrete. So you you really the goal was just to not go. But then you get up to yeah you know, two weeks you can't really you, you can't be doing that. Although uh, I think um, Borman got up <laughs> made it nine days before he had to <laughs> confront the dreaded fecal bag. But that you, you didn't even have a toilet. You had a bag. You had a little bit with an adhesive layer that would stick to your butt. And you had, and the other thing that was quite difficult was that you didn't have what they call good separation. This is what the waste management people talk about. Because you don't have gravity to pull the material away from your body as you do on a toilet. It just kind of hovers. So you had to kind of coax the material down into the bag using a finger cot, which was like a little... You know, the little thing, two fingers of a glove, you'd sort of stick it into the plastic bag and 
you know, coax it, kind of cut it off, coax it away from your body. It was horrible. It was like the biggest morale deflator that there was. And uh, they came down from Apollo and got, gave their feedback to the management at NASA. And one of them, there was some line that I was told, the guy said, we have to do better. <laughs> so well, then, then the, and the toilets, even the... Uh, the toilets are certainly a, a tr- represent a tremendous advance in space waste management, but even then, there are a lot of problems. They call those problems escapees. Those are one of the problems. Yes, the escape. Yeah, because uh, you know, it's an airflow. It's like a shop vac because it, 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 you got airflow drag that's kind of pulling the material away from the body, giving you good separation. But because it's an airflow, it kind of works like a popcorn popper. You see, you know, you get to the side of the airflow and things can kind of plus zero gravity make their way upward, not downward. And then you, uh, if you aren't looking as you drift away from the toilet seat, stuff can escape, escapees. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a big bummer. Now, one of the things about this book that I really struck me was you as a writer have to do just a tremendous amount of paperwork. I mean, your patients must be incredible to fill out all this paperwork to get access to all this NASA people, the archives. Talk about just right. the process of, you know, it must be worse than the FOIA request. Well, uh, I don't even, FOIA, I never even bother with FOIA because it takes months and months. And by the time you get what you need, if you get what you need, it's too late. So I, but what it is, it's, it's a lot of sending off emails to people. And then when they say no, kind of breaking down, what, why are you, why are you saying no? What, what is, what's your hesitation and addressing their concerns? Like, are you worried I'll get the science wrong? Are you worried I'll misquote you? What, why, why are you saying no, maybe we can make this work? And so it's a lot of, uh, for this book in particular, dealing with a government agency who, who are, you know, a little concerned. They kind of like to control what's covered. And uh, they were tremendously helpful up to a point. There were some things, and it wasn't their fault. It was just policy. You know, astronauts uh, need to have a little privacy when they come back. And, of course, I'm like, I want to go to the shuttle right after it lands and go in and s- have a sniff and see what it looks like in there. Can I do that? Well... Um, no, you know, or like, can I talk to the astronauts right when they come down from a long mission? No, they're with their families. You know, I had this very naive expectation that I could kind of just insert myself into the process wherever I wanted, and that wasn't the case. So it was a lot of figuring out, well, maybe the cosmonauts would be more amenable, or maybe I'll go to the Japanese space agency. And so, uh, yeah, a tremendous amount of time sent, um, spent sending out emails and kind of making overtures, hitting a wall, going somewhere else. So that, that surely, that took up, you know, two-thirds of my time. You know, the thing that makes your books so wonderful is your sense of story, both within the small stories you tell and the way those build up to your vision of humanity. And that's what each of these books, no matter what they're about, they're all about really the most essential parts of being human. And no matter how you kind of like hone in on the the least appealing aspects, yet you seem to find that humans were a sweet and kind of likable species. I I think so. I think, uh, you know, Almost without exception, the people that I've spent time with in the in the books. I mean, although they're they're dealing with sometimes sort of what some people would perceive as disgusting or very very bizarre things, like with Stiff certainly, and and even with Bonk, you know, dealing with the nitty gritty of of sexual physiology. They're 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 just lovely 
funny, intelligent people that you'd love to sit with at a dinner party. And we'll talk about taking these smaller stories and crafting them into these wonderful books uh, in terms of how your sense of story works and how you put together these pieces. Do you like write each chapter separately and then kind of massage them, put them all in a pile and say, well, how is this going to go together? Yeah, I, I, I've spent the, the first few months is figuring out where I'm going to go and what, what will be the different chapters. And, and that's changing constantly because things fall apart and other things present themselves. And, I'm, I, and I, I, as soon as I have enough material for a chapter, I will write it, even though I don't know where it's going to go and how it's going to fit in mm-hmm. to the book. But that, uh, I'd say about eight months out, it all kinds of gels and you get a sense of, all right, I know how the first third will go and how it's going to segue into the middle and how I'm going to conclude it. But I, I know now not to expect that feeling of knowing what I'm doing for at least eight months. You, you do have a feeling of kind of um, gathering things that you don't know quite know how you're going to use them. You know, you know them when you see them. This has to be in the book. It's too great. It's too fascinating. And it fits in some general way, but I don't know where it'll fit and what it will follow and what will follow it. And I have to just trust that in time, I will know, because otherwise I'd lose my mind. Well, you know, I came here, it's very gracious of you to invite me to your house in Oakland, and it's been a long drive. I'm somewhat parched, and I'm wondering if you might have a tall, cold bottle of human urine in your refrigerator. (laughs) I'm sorry, I drank it all. (laughs) Really? I don't have any for you, Rick. If Uh you have about 48 hours, I can um, whip up a batch of your own for you. (laughs) Really? All you need is you can buy a little survival. It's this uh, osmotic pressure and uh, some activated charcoal. It's a two-step process, and uh, then you can stick it in the fridge and, and have it the next day. Now, did you actually try this? I sure did. I I did. I I ta- I wanted to interview Sherwin Gormley, who is a wonderful, fascinating man at NASA Ames, and he worked on the uh, the rig on the International Space Station that recycles urine into drinking water, which is is they're very good at doing. And I thought, well, it would be good again talking about wanting to have that narrative uh, mm-hmm. angle to the chapter. I thought, well, I'll go. Uh, we'll both purify some urine, and then I'll go down to the NASA Ames cafeteria, and we'll have lunch, and that will be our beverage. We'll both have a glass of urine while we talk and do the interview. So that's what we did. Mary, can you tell us, have you settled on the subject for your next book? Do I you... have, but I'm, I'm keeping it under my hat for a while. I just uh, like to let it kind of ferment a little bit before I spit it out there. Well, you know... Your books, you are a kind of a, a genre unto yourself. Um, you, you, I think you write nonfiction, genre fiction. Your first book, Spook, is, is essentially a zombie novel. <laughs> yeah. Your second book, or your first book, Stiff, is, is the zombie novel. Your, your Spook is the ghost story. Uh, Bonk is the Cronenberg uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. opus. <laughs> And, and uh, now we have uh, essential. I think the closest analog in the science fiction world is a novel by Martin Caden called Marooned, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was about astronauts who were marooned, trapped up in space. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, it, I'm curious, when you're approaching your subjects, do you think about the, the fictional analogs? And as you write them up, do you think, because I I couldn't help but think about all the kind of science fiction aspects that your, this current novel or book. You know what I thought about with this one? There's that song, uh, 
this is ground control to Major Tom, the Bowie song, mm-hmm. I'm floating... I'm floating through in a most peculiar way, and the papers want to know what shirts you wear, and it's time to leave the capsule if you dare. You could almost do, I could have almost done a chapter using a line. Uh, Each chapter could have a line from that song. Uh, So I didn't really, I wasn't thinking so much about books, but that, um, that little short song really encapsulates all of the bizarreness and, and sadness and challenges of space. So that, that I thought about a lot. I've been speaking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Packing for Mars. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Thanks, Rick. Always fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.